Well, this morning we are moving into the, the fifth chapter of James, uh, towards the end of the, the New Testament. And uh, as Martin was saying a few moments ago, this is the 13th of 15 uh, studies in this particular series. And uh, if you've been in any of the, the previous uh, weeks and uh, have listened to any of the teachings, I think you're probably aware by now that uh, James is a no-nonsense kind of guy. You know, he tells it as it is, straight talking, straight to the point, no nonsense stuff, uh, alarmingly direct, and he calls a spade a spade. And throughout this uh, letter, his one objective is uh, his goal for his readers, and his readers were Jewish Christians who had been scattered um, throughout the Roman Empire. His one aim and his goal for them was spiritual maturity. And that's what the five chapters are all about that we're reading in James uh, together. That he doesn't want Christians to remain as spiritual babes in Christ, but he wants them to become adults and uh, imitators of Christ. And we've learned through these, uh, this series of talks that spiritual maturity has very little to do with about concerning the length of time that you've been a Christian. You know, some people believe that, don't they? That you know, I've been a Christian so many years, I must be a mature Christian. It doesn't always necessarily follow that that's the case. And Jim says that really it's not enough to have the ability to quote Bible verses or to know um, who is Moses' sister or Abraham's uh, father or how many chapters in Isaiah or what the theme of Matthew's Gospel is about. That kind of knowledge doesn't necessitate Um, maturity rather and James sums this up so beautifully in in chapter 2 and we looked at this a few weeks ago he says what good is it dear brothers and sisters if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions can that kind of faith save anyone you see the reality of our faith is evidenced by a changed life and genuine faith mature faith will always be seen in the way that we live our lives and the way that we act. And last week, Fiona spoke about uh, some other signs of spiritual maturity towards the end of chapter 4 there. She said that um, uh, signs of spiritual immaturity were planning without God, presuming um, about tomorrow. Jim says that our lives are so transient, they're just like a morning mist that appears so real for a moment and then it's gone and also putting off doing good, procrastination in other words. Now today's teaching is far more severe. I thought I'd warn you. In fact, Dan was supposed to be speaking today, but we needed a fit some time holiday for him, and I thanked him, you know, a lot for leaving this one with me. All joking aside, this is the harshest passage I think, in the entire letter of James. And we're going to be reading the first six uh, verses from chapter 5. And uh, I would suggest that it's a little bit like reading an Old Testament prophet. So I wanted to say that, so brace yourselves, okay? You know what's coming. Let's have a look at this together. Now listen, you rich, rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. 
You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Are you feeling good about yourselves yet? Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You can now see why I'd hoped that Dan was going to be speaking on this, not me. Okay, the first question that I've got is that, um, who is James here referring to? Who is he referring to? Now, if you were to read a number of scholarly commentaries um, by theologians on this particular passage, the opinion is divided. Some people say that James was writing to Jewish Christians, those Christians who were abusing their wealth, And other scholars would say that he's not writing to Christians at all. He's actually writing to, or writing about those who were wealthy, unbelieving Jews. And opinion is dividing. For what it's worth, I actually think that he's writing to those within the church, those those who are Christians. They're harsh words. I know they're very, very harsh words. But I believe that he doesn't just do a detour for six verses, you know, throughout the entire five chapters, he's been dealing with Christians, those uh, Jewish Christians who have been scattered amongst the Roman Empire. And I don't think that he's just changed for six verses. I think he's on the same subject. Not forgetting that in chapter 4, he uses some pretty harsh terminology when he is speaking uh, to Christians. He calls them uh, adulterous uh, people and sinners and enemies of God and so forth. Now, in one respect, it doesn't really matter who the original recipients of this letter were or who this passage uh, is about, whether it's about Christians or those who are not Christians, because what James has to say applies to both. And there are principles and values here that we can take from these few verses and then apply them to our lives. And it was uh, John Blanchard who once said this, that not all scripture is written to us But all scripture is written for us. I think that's really key when we understand scripture, actually. You know, take, for example, um, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You know that those weren't written to you. You know that, don't you? They weren't written to you. They were written, actually, to Christians living in the city of Corinth in southern Greece 2,000 years ago. That said... There are things in what Paul wrote to those Christians 2,000 years years ago in southern Greece that apply very much to our lives today. And, you know, we've got great chapters like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the chapter on the Lord's Supper, and 1 Corinthians 13, which is that great, uh, his great words on love, and chapter 15, the words on the resurrection of Christ, and what our resurrection is going to be like. They apply to us. But we need to understand that this quote is actually a very good quote. Not all scripture is written to us. Well, obviously it's not. It was written for someone else at a different time. But it is most definitely written for us. And I would say this morning, as we look at this section, these six verses, (laughs) they're not written to us, okay? But there are things that we can learn, very much so, from these words. There are principles which are important today. As, as indeed they have been throughout the centuries. 
So let's work through this. And I know it all sounds very harsh and very much in your face, like an Old Testament prophet. Um, but we need to try to understand what this means. And then the big question, and we've never done our task when we're teaching from the scriptures, unless we have got to that place of asking, what does now this mean for us today? Yeah, you with me on that? Okay, the first thing that uh, James does is he denounces the hoarding of wealth. Let's look at those verses again, verses 1 to 3. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now the first thing to say is that James is not condemning those who are wealthy people. There are lots of wealthy people in the scriptures. You know, you've got Abraham and Job and David and Solomon in the New Testament. You've even got people like Lydia and Barnabas. They were wealthy people. So there's not a, a condemnation here for those who are wealthy people. And secondly... James wasn't talking either about it being wrong to have personal savings. Because when you look at um, uh, passages in Proverbs, for example, in uh, Proverbs uh, 21 verse 20, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And then you also have in uh, Proverbs chapter 30 verse 24, consider the ant and how it stores up in winter. Now, what I'm saying here is that it's possible to save. If it's possible to save, then scriptures are saying that that's a pretty wise thing to do. So, what is James talking about here in these few verses? Perhaps the best answer to that is found in Luke chapter 12. And when Fiona spoke last week, she mentioned this chapter. It was the story that Jesus told of the rich farmer. That uh, he was, um, he produced a good crop and he thought to himself, what can I do? I don't have space to store my crops. So he decided to tear down his barns and to build some bigger ones. And then to sit back and as he says in the NIV, to take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. It's really interesting, actually. I was reading the other day the Living Bible. And it's really interesting the way that they uh, translate that phrase, eat, drink and be merry. Let me read it to you from the Living Bible. Friend, you have stored away for years to come. Now take life easy. Wine, women and song for you. (laughs) I thought that was absolutely brilliant. That really tickled me when I read that the other day. (laughs) But God said to this man... You fool! This night your your life is going to be demanded of you and then who is going to get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus said to the crowd, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. You see, that man's problem was that he left God out of the equation. Planning is good. And it's biblical. And it's wise. But planning becomes presumption when you leave God out of the equation. Yeah, we got that. And likewise, saving, because that's the, cha- that's the passage we're looking at this morning. Saving is good. It's biblical and it's wise if you can do it. 
But saving also becomes hoarding when you leave God out of the equation. I want to take a little bit deeper about this and ask what is really the difference here between planning and presumption and what's the difference between saving and hoarding. And the simple answer to that, and I can answer that in just one word, and it's the word heart. That is the difference between planning and presumption. It's the difference between saving and hoarding. Or more specifically, it is humility of heart. You see, let me put it to you this way. That if we live our lives with humility before God, knowing, knowing that God is God and we are not God, and that God can do anything he wants to do and that God can turn on their head our best made plans any moment he chooses, and if we know that and if we live with our plans held very lightly in our hands then I would suggest to you that planning is actually a godly practice and a godly pursuit. Are you with me on that? But if we leave God out of the equation of our lives and we just plan and presume that we are untouchable, then I would also suggest to you that that's ungodly, unbiblical and unwise, presumptuous perhaps. Likewise, if we live with humility before God, knowing that every penny that we have and own, every penny in our bank account is God's, and that God can do with our money whatever he so chooses, and the fact is that he might indeed ask some of us to use it for some other purpose than the purpose that we intended it to be used, then I think that we can legitimately say that we are saving but as if we see our bank account as our bank account and we see our material possessions as our material possessions rather than seeing ourselves as stewards of God's resources, then I believe that saving becomes hoarding. It's a matter of heart. And the bottom line in all of this is how tightly are we holding on to our plans and how tightly are we holding on to our possessions? And those that James is writing to in this chapter, it appears that they are holding very, very tightly. And he doesn't criticise them about their wealth or be, being wealthy or about saving, but he criticises them about hoarding. Are you with me so far? James, what he says, also reminds me of Paul when he wrote to his spiritual son Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:17, when he writes command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain to put their, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment again you look at those words Paul does not condemn wealth he doesn't condemn them for being rich and let's be honest this morning all of us, never mind who you are, it doesn't matter if you're in full-time education, and etc., etc. We're amongst the 10% richest people on the planet. And God is not against us enjoying good things of life. God is not anti-rich people. He's not against the wealthy. That is, as long as what we possess doesn't possess us. Just look at that for a moment, that statement. 
as long as what we possess doesn't possess us. And James here and Paul are not saying anything different at all to what Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And that is, the things that we treasure actually govern our lives. And what we value will captivate our minds and our emotions and it will consume our time and our energies and our imagination. Again, as um, Paul writes to his spiritual son Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Note there how this is often misquoted, this verse. Paul doesn't say, that the love of, uh, or he doesn't say rather that money is the root of all evil. doesn't say that. Money is neutral. Money is neither good nor bad. And much good can be done with money. But he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, he said, are eager, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, it's all about heart. Let's come back to James. This is quite interesting, what he has to say here. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now, some commentators in the scriptures, they feel that uh, James actually got it wrong here, because... um, uh, silver and gold are part of uh, a group of precious metals... And they don't actually corrode. And so, trying to think back, you know, cast my mind back nearly 40 years ago when I was doing my A-level chemistry. Uh, There's not much I can remember, I tell you. But doing my best, the one thing that I do remember is that there were different kinds or different groups of metals. You had noble metals or precious metals like silver and gold and some other. And then you had base metals. And the difference between them is that base metals, that when they come in contact with moist air, they will rust, they will corrode. But the precious metals or the noble metals won't. And some people felt that uh, James has made a mistake here by saying that silver and gold are corroding. But I don't believe for a moment that he has made a mistake. I believe what he was actually doing was speaking metaphorically. And this is what he's saying, I believe. He's saying that silver and gold do not corrode. But these symbols of wealth, silver and gold, will be as worthless on the day of judgment as a heap of old rusty metal. That, I believe, is what's being said there. And again, James is uh, following the words of Jesus. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said these words. He said, do not store up for yourselves uh, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So in other words, Jesus is saying to store up for ourselves on earth is actually foolish because whatever we store up for ourselves can one day be lost. It's perishable. It can rust, it can spoil, it can fade, it can be destroyed, it can be eaten by vermin, whatever. It's not going to last. But then Jesus said that heavenly treasures are rust-proof, moth-proof, burglar-proof. 
and they will last forever. In fact, the Bible speaks of a life that will never end in John 3.16. A gift that will never be lost in John 6.37 and 39. A love from which we will never be separated, Romans 8, verse 39. A calling that will never be revoked, from Romans 11, verse 29. A foundation that will never be destroyed, 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. And an inheritance that will never spoil or fade, 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. And I just want to shout, Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for that. Well, at least you could wake up at that point. That would be, that, that would be great. You know, sort of just open your eyes and even if you are sleeping, that's, that's, that's great. No, seriously. Isn't that good stuff? You know, doesn't it encourage our hearts when we think of all that we have committed our lives to? The foundation of our very lives is Jesus Christ and all that he has given us and the love in him that we, which is never ending. Praise God for that. In last week's study, uh, we were told that uh, our lives are a little bit like a morning mist that uh, lasts only for a short while. That our lives are transient, that they are uh, short-lived, that they're fleeting, that they're momentary. I've heard many older people over the years say, my word, where have all the years gone? Uh, it seemed only the other day I was 20. Where have, they've just flown by. Where have those years gone? And um, which is, of course, a, a, another reason why hoarding wealth is, is, is rather stupid. It doesn't make any sense. My grandmother used to say to us, you can't take it with you. I remember her saying that. You can't take it with you. I, um, forgive me, I, a couple of years back I shared a story with you um, of um, a, a minister who was looking for uh, a dark suit to wear in a funeral service that he was taking. And he didn't have much money and he, he decided to buy a new suit. So instead of going to Marks and Spencer, he went to the local pawn shop. That's P-A-W-N. <laughs> because he wouldn't have been looking in any other kind of shop. Um, and he went into this uh, pawn broker and spoke to the... And they had the right size and it was black and it was very inexpensive. And it was just too, too, too good to be true. But the pawnbroker said that um, the suits had been previously owned by the undertaker. And uh, what they had done with the suits is that they put them on the deceased and just before burial they would take them off and then send them to the pawnbroker. And the minister felt a little bit strange about this. You know, he was now wearing a, a suit that had been on a dead man but he knew that no one else knew about this so he said, why not? And that was, everything was going fine until halfway through the sermon when he decided to put his hands into his pockets only to find out that the suit trousers had no pockets. And that for him was an unforgettable lesson. That there he stood preaching to these people about the importance of living life in the light of eternity as he wore a pair of trousers with no pockets that were previously on a dead man. You see, neither James nor for that matter Jesus are teaching that it's wrong to have a nice home or possessions or money. They're not condemning wealth. In fact, what they're saying is far deeper than that. It's all about a person's heart. It's all about their motivation, their attitude towards life. It's all about where it is that that person places their faith and trust and hope and security. Do we hold tightly to the things of this life or not? That's, that's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question for me. It's a good question for us all this morning. How tightly 
Do we hold on to the things that we possess? And do our possessions actually possess us? Okay. Let's move on. The second thing that uh, James seems to denounce here in this passage is injustice. Let's look at the next few verses. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. My word. I sense an ouch when I read those words. This must have been so difficult for the original recipients to read this, don't you think? You know, imagine getting a letter like this with this kind of uh, teaching and these kind of words. Well, the Old Testament was very, very just when it came to looking after the poor. And the biblical law in the Old Testament provided uh, that um, an employer should always pay his bills on time. And in Leviticus 19 verse 13, it says, Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Okay, why not? The answer comes in another passage, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Pay him his wages before sunset, because he is poor, and counting on it. You see, the poor labourer was dependent on what he was getting day by day, because theirs back then was a hand-to-mouth existence. Now, when Julie and I were in Malawi a few weeks ago, we experienced this, we saw this, didn't we? Of people, that's the way that they were living. It, they didn't get a whole load of money that they would spend over the next, next uh, month, but it was hand-to-mouth existence. And this is the way that it was back there in Bible times too. And the reason for these uh, Old Testament laws was that it would prevent a rich landowner from delaying a payment to one of his hired workers and then some days, maybe a week later, haggling over actually the amount that was due. And such kind of injustice was, uh, was condemned. And James writes, the cry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And then the last verse, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And James is totally uncompromising here in his language. And in effect, he tells them that they were, they were responsible for the deaths of some of their hired servants. And he even goes as far as to call it murder. Now, the big question is, how does this apply to us today? Yeah? And I'm sure you're asking that question this morning. This is pretty heavy, full-on teaching and this is James's letter to Christians 2,000 years ago. But how does this apply to us today? What's this all about? Okay. Let's give that a shot. Firstly, I would say, well, I would say categorically, actually, that God is still the God who is against injustice. Do you believe that? Every form of injustice. In fact, those famous words from the prophet Micah, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Great verse. If you like, that's God's standard. And those are God's values for 
every person who calls himself or herself a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure we are not the kind of people who withhold wages from our workers or act unjustly in such a blatant manner. So how does it apply to us then? Maybe, just maybe, we don't speak as loudly as we ought for the poor. That we don't speak up for them as loudly as we ought for the poor, for the marginalised, for the disenfranchised, for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for the oppressed, for those who are being trafficked from one place to another, from one country to another, uh, against their will. Maybe that we are so concerned with what happens within the four walls of a church building that we seem to forget that our calling is to bring God's light into a dark world and God's justice to a world which is skewed by, by greed and injustice and to bring God's mercy to those people in their lives so far have only ever known hatred and hurt. You see, the rich people that James was writing to withheld uh, wages from those who deserve them. And might I ask this morning, what is it that we are withholding from others? That's a big question. What are we withholding from others? Are we withholding compassion and care from an elderly relative? Are we withholding forgiveness from someone who has offended us? Are we withholding time and attention from our young children? Are we withholding finance from the Lord's work for some reason? Are we withholding the gospel message? A message that could change the lives of our friends and their families and our colleagues at work. And are we doing that because of cowardice? Now, if any of those things are true, then I would also say that we are acting unjustly and that we are not showing mercy as we ought. The third thing that we see with James is that James denounces sinful indulgence. He says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence and you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, this is just a metaphor that James is using. And I think that that probably would have been um, familiar to his, uh, his readers. They knew exactly what this was all about. They'd seen animals who were not prepared, not given to work in the fields, but animals who were pampered and fed for one reason and one reason alone. The day was coming, yes? For that animal to be slaughtered. And what James is saying to those recipients, those first recipients of this letter is that they were not only hoarding wealth, but acting unjustly to others, but they were also living in idleness and luxury. They were living pampered lives, oblivious to the needs of those around them, oblivious to what God had called them to be. And I would say that one of the biggest challenges that Julie and I had uh, a few weeks ago when we went to Malawi and we, we, we saw Jackie, and Jackie is, as you know, working amongst the poorest people of the poor, in um, Malawi and one of the greatest uh, challenges that we had was to understand the contrasting lifestyles between us in the UK us in the West and the people in Malawi and our lives are so incredibly cluttered with things 
And our lives are so astonishingly um, luxurious compared with them. We're living in incredible luxury. And some of the villages around Jackie don't even have running water and electricity. And yet we found a people so incredibly grateful for all that they had. I know I've showed you this uh, photograph before and I'll put it on screen. There's a little house that Julie and I passed and I had to take a photograph of it. It doesn't come out very well on screen there. But the house was essentially the size of the camera shot there. You can see there the side wall and the end of the house. I worked it out, it's probably about 12 square meters, the entire house. And engraved on the front door, a grass roof, engraved on the front door, God answered. And that was the spirit of the people that we, we met, who had such an overwhelming gratitude to God, and they were incredibly generous as well. I tell you, we will never ever forget this gentleman, Pastor Heston, this 33-year-old godly pastor with his wife, Mercy, who had ten children to look after, four of their own and six nieces and nephews for, for other reasons, uh, living on about £35 a month. And I remember when we met them and we had uh, goat supper on their floor. And I remember, see this, uh, this little wire going up the wall and I remember asking Heston about that you don't have electricity I said you know what's that all about what's, what's that there for and he said to me and he showed me with great delight this tiny little torch bulb joined to this wire going down and it was uh, uh, linked into a battery cell and he said that is what I use when it goes dark and it goes dark at 6 o'clock that's what I used to read my Bible every night. And it was his pride and joy. And I was so incredibly, incredibly humbled. You see, in, in comparison, many of us, and I would say, not only, but especially the younger generation, that we earn to spend as soon as we have some money in our pockets we feel that we have the need to spend that money somehow on ourselves on our clothes on gadgets on our own pleasures and the thought is I say it's not only the young, younger generation I, I, in a measure it's all of us but the thought that God might have blessed us with some money to spend on him or on some other people doesn't even register with us you see I believe that God has given us our wealth not just to spend it on ourselves but to use it wisely for the purposes of God in this world and to be generous with others that we might bless others and that we might use it for the purposes of God in this world and for God's kingdom I was so blessed by a person a couple of weeks back who came up to me and said that she had been given a small lump sum of money and that she was going to upgrade her garden with this lump sum of money. It was an inheritance. And when she heard of the plight of uh, babies in Malawi, she said, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to give this. She said, I, I can at least save one child. And I was so incredibly humbled by that, that she should choose to do that. And I know that many others of you have responded to Martin's presentation last week, and thank you for that. But throughout these six verses that we've looked at this morning, you know, they're about people who, who live their lives as if there's no God, no eternity, and no day of judgment to come. There's an old story of a godless American farmer who wrote to his local newspaper. He's, and he wrote to his local newspaper saying, I have been conducting an experiment in one of my fields. I have ploughed it on Sundays. I have sowed the seed on a Sunday. I have watered it on a Sunday. I have weeded it on a Sunday. I've gathered in the harvest on a Sunday. And I want to tell you that this October I've had the finest corn of Indian uh, finest crop of Indian corn in the whole neighborhood. And the editor published the letter, but added a footnote. God does not settle his accounts in October. <laughs> An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for many years, and they were returning to, the, to New York to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. Everybody was trying to get a glimpse of the, the president and his entourage. No one paid any attention to them at all. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the missionary said to his wife, something is so wrong here. We have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these years and no one cares anything about us. Here this man, he comes back from a hunting trip and everybody, everybody is just, just trying to get a glimpse of him. Nobody cares two hoots about us. And his wife said to him, dear, you shouldn't be thinking that way. I can't help it, he said. It just seems that that's the case. And his wife replied, well, why don't you just go to the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? And he did. A short time later, he came out of the bedroom. His old demeanor had changed. He had no light in his eyes and his, his face changed. And, and she said, what's, what's happened with you? Well, he said, the Lord settled with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no, no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and said, but you're not home yet. <laughs> you see, that man recognized one important truth. He was on a journey. He was passing through. And he was on his way to his permanent home. And this morning, that's something that I want us to recognize too. Let's pray together. Guys, if you'd like to come back.